But before we go to the text, I just want uh, to reiterate, and perhaps if you're here with us for the first time this morning, it's helpful to see that we are looking at episodes. There are episodes of an experience or an encounter with Jesus Christ. And all of these are compiled and edited in such a way for an intention of the author of Matthew and his gospel. He's trying to do what I think the purpose of this sermon series is, to be faithful to the text, is show these episodes in concurrent fashion so that somewhat of a collage or an image of Jesus Christ will begin to take shape. It's as if you'd look at a painting and if you look up uh, too close, everything's all just smirched uh, smudges and ink blobs. But when you step back and you look at the gospel for what it's saying, the whole gospel, you start to see the actual image of Christ. You start to actually see, alright, so he's not that, but he is this, and he's a little like this, and he's a lot like that. And then it all comes clear. It's the beautiful thing we have in the Word of God. For example, we saw, as we started, Jesus went back home. He went to Nazareth. And they were asking that one question we're asking, which is, who is he? Who is Jesus Christ? They asked it, unfortunately, in the wrong direction because they were so familiar with him, they couldn't see him. See, they were way too close. The image didn't crystallize at all. This is Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. We know his mother. We know his father. We know his brothers and sisters. They didn't say, who is he? Their particular question was, where did he? They said, where did this man get these things? Because he shouldn't have these things because he's Jesus of Nazareth. And I know him. We saw also Herod Antipas last week. This great king in that region had an opinion of Jesus as well. He heard of the fame of Jesus, we're told. And his great fame, Herod internalized it. And this is an amazing thing. He said, John the Baptist, the man that I killed, rose from the dead. That was, his, that was his better explanation. Who's doing all these miracles? The man that I killed, he's come back from the dead. Think about that as far as how faith works. Remember, Jesus couldn't do any miracles in Nazareth because they had no faith. And then the very next thing you see is Herod saying, well, John's, John came back from the dead because that happens all the time. Do so you see how miracles and faith really have nothing to do with this? This man's willing to actually believe that John rose from the dead, but he still cannot see Jesus. The last group we left was uh, the 5,000 men. They were all fed by Jesus. And they had an answer for themselves as well, and they actually were getting closer to the truth. They said, this man is a great prophet, which is definitely not the full picture. But definitely not wrong. Now, it is more crystal than it's ever been yet in the whole Gospel of Matthew. We'll see Jesus in verse 22. That great crowd tried to make him king by force. Jesus didn't want to do that because they misunderstood him and what he was about. So he decided to send his disciples away. It says this, Immediately, 
He made the disciples get into a boat and go before him and to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by that time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves. An important phrase is this, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. And when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. No one has ever, no one has ever got it that clear yet. No one has ever prostrated themselves in worship to the carpenter's son. There's something here that happened. And it's not just because he did a miracle, because he has been doing miracles. But there's something here that happened in which his disciples and we with them especially now, this morning, are able to perceive something of him that as of to this point, they have not been able to apprehend. They on that boat fell on their faces and worshipped Jesus and said, you are, you are the Son of God. When Jesus immediately directed them away, there was apparently something in the crowd and them wanting, John 6 says, wanting to make him king and knew he was a great prophet and if you can make a lot of food, that's going to really help you with a social service program and running for a political office. If you can hand out food and even a few stickers that say, vote Jesus, they were like, this can work. We can do this. Let's have a, a Republican National Convention. And Jesus said, actually, I don't want to do that. Um, and so he gets his disciples away and puts them on a boat. And he goes up into the mountains to pray for hours, evidently. It's the uh, fourth watch, which means that it was between 3 to 6 a.m. in the night or morning, whichever way you want to look at it. Either way, he was praying for a while. And the disciples were in that water for a long time. But then again, we're also told that the wind was against them. There's something going on in that water that wasn't normal. Uh, and they were having a hard time of it. 
if you want to say it that way. But this very important discovery comes to them. That when Jesus got back in the boat with them, that's the moment we're told that the wind stopped. And it was yet again calm. And from that moment, they worshipped him. They worshipped him. Truly you are the son of God. But really, how did they make this discovery? This one moment, this particular moment is nothing more than Jesus doing one particular thing. He's walking on water. He's not raising the dead. He's not multiplying bread. He's walking on water. In the middle of the lake, you would say. Really, the phrase is the Sea of Galilee, which is a little bit of a generous term. It's a very large or medium-sized lake. How do they discover this? It says that in that fourth watch, they're getting beaten by the waves and the wind, for they were against them. He came walking to them. And it says, on the sea, the Sea of Galilee, which is a large lake. The disciples saw him walking, it says, on the sea, and they were terrified. And their answer to the question initially is, who is he? And they say, he is a phantom, a ghost, it says in the Greek. That is a ghost. Misappropriation, that's a common theme throughout Matthew. You see Jesus, you do, see him doing something, and almost everybody initially is always coming up with the wrong conclusion. Even his very disciples are seeing him walking on the water, and, and the only way that could comport in their mind is that, what is light enough to walk on water? Ghosts, maybe. But it couldn't be the Lord of glory. At least not yet. They haven't seen it. And Jesus' response is, do not be afraid. It is I. The word is ego and me, which could also be translated, I am. Do not be afraid. I am standing on the water. Stephen said that at the beginning of the worship service. Moses asked the same question we're asking. Who is he? An angel inside of a burning bush. But the bush isn't consumed. There's fire. He says, I'll turn over and look at this great sight. The angel called to him. It says, God called him out of the bush. Moses, stop. The place in which you're standing is holy ground. Take off your sandals. You should not be at equal footing with me. And Peter shouldn't be walking on the water. Do you see? But he is. And Moses should not be standing in the presence of the glory of the holy God who is I am. But he was. And so Moses particularly asked the question, when you send me, and the people ask, what God visited you into the wilderness? What is his name? What should I tell them? 
And the next is three. He meets that one true and living God. And God says, Aye, Asher, Aye. I am which I am. Or I will be what I will be. And you mind your own business. You see, I am. There is no predication. There is nothing else to say. He is the one who has a being unto himself, who is his own entity, who is distinct from all of creation. As that fire was unique from the bush, it's burning, but the bush isn't consumed. This is of a different order. This fire is of a different generation. This fire is a different place. It's coming from the very, emanating from the very holy goodness of God. I am. And there is Jesus' phrase, walking on the water. They're afraid because it doesn't make sense that a man be walking on the water. And Jesus said, it does make sense because I am. This is mine. I can do whatever I want with it. Do you see your God? Do you know who he is? Do you see when we say we worship Jesus Christ? This is not idolatry. We do not just worship a man. We do not just have a figure in history. We are worshiping the one true Yahweh. Who is. And who was. And who always will be. And him on that water is them just beginning to see. What truly has happened. In Job 8 verse 9. God chooses to describe himself a particular way. He's putting Job in his place or explaining to Job who he is. And he says this. God, particularly, is the one who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples the waves of the sea. If you have that concept in mind, Please, you'll never be afraid again. Now granted, you could take your eyes off that. You could forget Jesus Christ, forget the word. And we always will, we'll always fail, we'll always falter. Praise God that Peter sunk. My Lord, like, do you realize he's like us? But here's the reality. The one, take this Deep to your soul. The one who stretches out the heavens. Trapples the waves of the sea. That is God's own description of himself. Meditate on it. He he stretches out the heavens like a cloth. Like an expanse. And he also is the one who can trample on the waves of the sea. This is Job 8-9. Yesterday my daughter wanted to play video games on the phone. And I must be really thirsty because I don't do that. I really hate drinking water in front of everybody. Um, it's that kind of day. Uh, but yesterday, my uh, daughter wanted to play uh, video games on the phone. And I was scrolling, trying to find something that was kind of relevant uh, in that app store. And I fell across uh, the old game, um, The Sims. There was a game uh, labeled there. You might remember The Sims. Uh, it was kind of like a famous game. Uh, in the 90s or early 2000s. And it's called The Sims because everybody in this um, video game is called a sim. It's a simulation. And uh, it's a genius game for for how kids would enjoy playing a video game because they're not kids, uh, because they're kids and they're not adults, uh, that you get to do all the stuff that adults do in a video game, which is like, you know, do the laundry and pay the bills and live in a house and 
Uh, that's, the that's the game. Just live. So instead of living, you just go in the game and you live. But I guess when you're, you know, six or seven or eight, it's more fun. Um, but it's called a simulation, you see. Now, that's an, an, an amazing witness to how God has made us. No other creature can do that. We amuse ourselves because we're made in his image and we have such uh, cre creative properties and abilities that we create alternate worlds. As humans, as made in God's image, we can actually create simulations. And in those simulations, or a sim game, or any video game particularly, there is a logic, a code. There's programmers and there's systems to the game. And you can do this, and if you get this app, you can fly, and then if you do this, you can do other things in the game. And all within that simulation, uh, there's a, there's a worked-in logic or a reality in how the game works. But that's not real life. Do you see what this all means? He's the one who made everything. If he wants to walk on water, John says he is the Logos. A computer program is ones and zeros and Boolean logic or however they do these things. But he is logic. Everything was made by the word of his power. We, as a derivation of being made in his likeness, can create simulations. And they're fun to play around with and to pretend to be God for a few minutes. But you see, when he's walking on the water, he's in his own video game. He is not of this creation. He is separated from this creation a thousand times higher than we are from any video game or simulation or alternate reality that we can conceive up in our own imagination. And it's the same way we could come in and manipulate and do anything we want with our own Lego set, with our own simulation, with our own little world. The one who stretches out the heavens, tramples along the waves. If he can make it all, he can do whatever he wants with it all. If he can make the heavens the way he is, he can walk across the waters the way he desires. And so here's Jesus deliberately putting this whole situation in place to say that this is me. I am walking. And don't be afraid. I sustained you in all this world at the same time. See, this word you have to hear. Can you hear these words where he says particularly, do not be afraid. See, the experience of fear we are all riddled with it at various times or seasons in our life. Being uneasy, being out of joint, having your mind dislocated. You need to hear the word from God which says, I am. You need to believe the Lord Jesus Christ who says he is. So when anything comes in your life... You've worked through this reality in your soul. That he has stretched out the heavens. He can walk upon the sea. There is nothing in this world that he cannot do according to his holy nature. That bedrock is more of a grounding than the ground. You see, Jesus took his feet off the ground and put them on a water. He moved his foot from the ground so that he might give you the proper grounds of faith. He is more real than the water. 
He is more substantial than gravity. He is more pernicious than cancer. He is more faithful. He is more consistent than logic. He owns everything. There is no trial. There is no difficulty in your life in which he is not, in all circumstances, in every sense, the I am. The wind was against them. God brought them to this place on purpose. Do you realize that every trial you've ever experienced in your life, if it is true that God is I am, that nothing happens outside of his will or purpose, that you cannot interpret anything except coming from him. And if that's hard, then you have to think about it one more minute and realize he loves you. Therefore, you could never have a right to be afraid of anything. He controls the waves. He controls your life. And then, because of that reason, he says, do not fear anything. Let's see why. There was a man named John Wesley, who's very famous in the 18th century. He was a revival preacher. He was from England. And there was a time when he was fairly younger that he was traveling to America. And we have this story because he wrote it in his personal diary. It's actually dated for Sunday, January 25th, uh, 1736. This man, John Wesley, was in a boat coming across the Atlantic with a, uh, a handful of different types of people. Um, he, would think, was moving to Savannah, Georgia for a time to be part of a mission and a ministry happening there with orphanage. In his diary, he had, of course, you can imagine, that's worse than a Delta flight. He's in that boat for a while. And um, you get to know everybody on the boat when you're crossing the Atlantic um, by wind. Uh, and of course, there was times when the wind was against them. But in his diary, he speaks about these Germans that he gets to know. And their actual names uh, were the Moravians. He was impressed by them. They were absolutely some of the most godly people he's ever met in his life. He said in his diary particularly, these Germans, their great seriousness in all their behavior, uh, they're mistreated and disrespected by the other passengers on the boat. He says, this is in his diary privately, he says, but there's a humility about them I've never seen before. They proved daily uh, in serving everybody on the boat in all the menial tasks all the English people wouldn't want to do. The Germans desired to do it. They didn't want to be paid for it. When people asked why they're doing all these things on the boat to serve everybody with all the menial, low-level kind of service, he quotes them and says their answer was, it was good for their proud hearts to serve other people. He said, our loving Savior has done far more for us. That's why we're serving you, you see. I mean, he was impressed by them. Truly impressed. And he said, there came a day in which not only um, their freedom uh, free from the spirit of pride and anger and revenge was clear, but there was a time they could demonstrate, and this is the beauty, they could demonstrate their freedom from the spirit of fear. Because actually they all go together. 
when you know the one true and living God who is the I am, yes, you end up being very humble. And also you don't fear things like you once did. It was tested them one time. In the middle of this trip, they were worshiping, singing psalms. In the midst of the psalm wherein their service began, he says, The sea broke over and spilt and split the main sail into pieces and covered the ship and poured in between all the decks as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. It's a great storm. They're all singing. The water billows over, smashes the center sail and splitters into the pieces. Pretty much going to die right there. There's no GPS. Wesley said, everyone else screamed and cried. And he said, but the Germans, the Moravians, they kept singing through it all. And afterwards, he approached one of them and said, were you not afraid to die? And the one man said, and I love this answer, I thank God, no. That's an awesome answer. You could puff your chest out and be like, I'm not afraid. If you say that, the Lord will break you tomorrow. If he loves you, he will break your pride. You see, there's a reason they weren't afraid. And it's even into that answer he gave. I thank the Lord, no. Oh, I'm not strong, not wise, and I'm not courageous. But I thank the Lord, I'm not afraid. And then Wesley responded, but your women and children, were they, aren't they afraid? Weren't they afraid? His answer was, and in his journal he quotes, he says, he replied mildly, no, our women and children are not afraid to die. Where does that come from? And why is that exactly what the Lord is doing with his disciples in the gospel? Do you realize this isn't the first time he's tested them on the water? We're in Matthew 14. There's Matthew 8. This is his second lesson with them on the water. In Matthew 8, it says that they all, he made them all get into the boat. And a great storm came. And the waves swamped in. And they said, Lord, save us, just like Peter did right now. And they said, we are going to perish. They were being afraid on the boat because of the waves. And then Jesus simply just mildly responds, Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. And then he rebuked the waves and the wind. And everything calmed. And they asked that question we're asking. Who is this man that the winds and the waves obey him? And the story ends. But see, it only ends so that we could pick it up again. So that the Lord Jesus Christ is progressing them. Do you see he is progressing you? You can in a sense say, I am a progressive Christian. He's moving me. I was scared in a boat before. And he put me back in the boat to get scared again. He's scaring you on purpose. Not because he doesn't love you. Because he is trying to form you. He is trying to get you to trust him. So that there was one time when he said, Oh, you have little faith for being afraid of the waves. And now he's going to Peter and he's saying, Why did you doubt, Oh, you have little faith for? 
walking on the water. That's better. I'd rather be a little faith person walking on the water than a little faith person cowered in the bottom of a boat. There's a progression. Everything is in God's plan. Everything is coming to us in this way. He who stretches out the heavens tramples on the seas, we're told in Job. When God made the heavens, this is, this is the point of all points. When God made the heavens, he stretched them out. We're told that he made a firmament, a stretching between the waters below and the waters above. It says particularly in Genesis 1, 6-8, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Everything has ever been made, the waters. Let there be expanse between them. That there would be a separation of the waters that are under the expanse from the waters that are above the expanse. We don't think this way. But this is what the scriptures say. This is actually the Hebrew way of thinking of the world. There's waters below, there's waters above. We just think of the waters below. Everyone thinks of the waters below. Everyone thinks, I don't want to die. Everyone thinks, I don't want to drown. Well, do you want to go to hell? Do you want to go to heaven? There's also a water above. There's a whole other thing going on. He who travels along the seas, Job says, is the one who also expanded the heavens. And we know when he expanded the heavens, he put water above. Now, many debate what that means. doesn't really matter for the purpose of the sermon. Particularly, you could think, my thinking and a lot of good research is saying it's a reference to the clouds. There's water above. There's water below. The water comes from the clouds above, hits to the water below. Why now does he take them back to the boat to teach them another lesson about water? Because they have to know he can walk on it. Not just that he can command the waves. Not that just he can speak to the wind. He has to show them that he can walk on the water. The visible heavens and all that he made. The one who stretches out the heavens tramples the sea. Jesus tramples the sea, which means he must be the one who stretched out the heavens. He walks on the waters below. And the question in the mind is, can he walk on the waters above? The question you wouldn't get from reading it in this context but that is the context. If he can make the heavens and walk along the waters below, can he walk along the waters above? Peter sees him. You have to wonder, what would you do in the boat? Would you ask this question? Lord, if you command me, it's a good start. If you command me, Lord, I don't want to do, do this presumptuously, but I definitely would like to be better than all the other disciples. So if you command me, I'd like to be the one to come out there with you. If you command me, the Lord says, come. Come, Peter. And you have to, do you believe the Bible? I'm going to read three things to you. And this might take all the fear out of your heart. Peter got out of the boat. He walked on the water. And he came to Jesus. Do you believe that? Is this just a story to you? 
Or did that mortal man walk on water? If you can't believe that, you have no life in Jesus' name. How could he ever carry you across the chasm of your death? If he cannot manage the waves of a pond in Galilee, you have no Savior. You have no Lord. How remarkable it is, you see, that of course Jesus could do this. But Peter is able to do this through faith. If you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. When you die, you'll be able to go to the heavens above. You can cross the waters above. It's not the billows and the, the, the waves down below that you have to fear only. But if you do not have a Savior who can walk on the waters below, then you do not have a Savior who can walk on the waters above. Because the one who walks on the waters is the one who even expanded the heavens and created it all. You have no solace for your soul. You have no place to know that if you were to be swept away, he does not have the hand to grab you. He does not have the hand to support you. You will sink. You will sink. You will go down into Sheol. You will go down into the depths of the bottom of the sea. You will go down to where Jonah sung and he swam with the fish in the belly of the well. You will have no way out. But glory to God, a man walked on the water with Christ. And you think, am I strong enough? Am I really saved? But when he saw the wind, I just, you're standing on water. The Lord of glory was within your purview. This is a mystery to me. And you're standing with him. Doing something you should never be doing. And that phrase he says, and he saw the wind. Dear God, do you see why we fear? What is wind? It's nothing. The wind produces the waves. The wind blows the leaves. But where's the wind? You have Jesus standing there on the water. And you happen to be standing on the water with him. And you're afraid of the wind? And he was. Because he's like us. You see. And the point of the whole narrative flips. Took his eyes off Christ. He looked at the wind. And it foiled his faith. And he floundered and failed. And he sunk. But he had faith. Little faith. Is saving faith. He had enough to want to be off the boat. And it was faith. Not in faith. It was faith in the one who is the I am. Lord save me. He will grab you. When you fail. When you falter. 
You cannot fail. None of your failures are fatalities. In his smallest seeds of faith that he had, he could actually walk on water with the Lord according to his sovereign holy will in that moment. Now is not that matched with the fact that if you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and confess with your mouth that he is Lord and God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved? Lord, save me. Oh, you're saved. But I failed. It doesn't matter. His hand is mighty to save. It is the same hand who has stretched the heavens. He, of course, can condescend through the heavens to bring you up to his eternal glory. You do not have to die in Sheol. You do not have to sink to the bottoms. All this we know and sure for the way he chose to leave. It was the word that produced the wind that brought the waves. Do you see? Undoing all of your fear is this. The waves came because of the wind. Peter saw the wind. I'm afraid. These waves are coming. Maybe his mouth is filling with water. Maybe he does feel as though he's going to die. He forgot his lesson from the first time on the boat. Where did the waves and the winds come from? Oh, you have little faith. Stands up, speaks. To, he rebuked them with his word. The reality is that wind was coming from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ can do whatever he wants with the wind. And he's afraid of the wind. He took his eyes off Christ and looked at what Christ is doing in his life, whether it be wind or turmoil or waves or whatever, and not realizing that is the Lord. The second they got in that boat, it says, the wind died down. Oh my, wow, talk about bad luck. Not luck at all. Jesus planned this whole thing for you, Peter. He wanted to break you. He wanted to humble you. He wanted to show you that if you take your eyes off him for a second, you have nothing. You have nothing. Do you understand that we have no business walking on water or even laying on our bed tonight? We are rebels in God's holy cosmos. You have nothing apart from that. The wind was from Jesus. Everything. He's the one that rebukes the waves. Instead, it ends from wind, from waves to wind to actual worship. All of this was not out of hatred. Every wave he brings into your life, do you see what it ends with? Worship. He broke them all, scared them half to death, so that they fell on their faces and found life. And they said, you truly are the Son of God. No one has had that confession yet in all of the Gospels. Now, why be afraid when even your fears are meant to give you faith so that you might live? When Jesus parted, as we do now, he said this. In Acts 1.9 he said, after he had said these things to his disciples, he was taken before their very eyes. In the clouds, the water above hid him from their side. He who walks on the waters walks on the clouds because he has stretched out the heavens and there is nothing that can keep you from his arms. So why be afraid, O you of little faith? For I am. Dear Father God,
We confess, Lord, that we have taken our eyes off you time again. But it is our incredible joy to know that you are the one that holds our life. Lord, if you can cause Peter to walk on the waters below, we are confident that you will cause us to walk on the waters above. That where you are, so we will be. That we will be your people, and you will be our God. And you will wipe every tear from our eyes, and we will be with you forevermore. Dear Father God, we thank you. You have cleansed the air with your Son and made a way to heaven. And that that way is pouring forth from us the Holy Spirit who has come down and fills our hearts now. Lord, we ask particularly grace be given to us now that we would have progress over fear, that we would have boldness and faith, and that we will walk with you knowing that you sustain every step we have according to your purpose and plan for our life, that we cannot fail, for you are faithful. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Please stand if you're able.